0: Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Centre. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. Apologies in advance. My neighbours have decided to do some construction work, and that might reflect in this recording. Yeah, we don't do this from a studio, even though we try and sound like it. This is the episode of April seven, two thousand and twenty-two. Great episode for you today, episode sixty-eight. My guest this week is Ritis Valunas. He is the Chief Officer for Corporate Affairs at KN in Lithuania. They operate LNG terminals and they are implicated in the long-term operation of the Klaipeda LNG terminal Klaipeda, being the third biggest city in Lithuania. So we're talking about liquefied natural gas, the importance for Lithuania and also imports and exports. How much uh, is uh, LNG already being used in Lithuania? So we're learning a bit more about the technical aspects of this way of getting natural gas to households. Also in this episode, the European Union is fine-tuning pesticide reduction targets and member states will need to do more to meet the goals of Brussels on this issue. And we'll also be talking about some of the reactions that have been given towards the uh, potential farm-to-fork stop, uh, suggested by Emmanuel Macron. And also Michael Landl from the World Vapers Alliance is joining us to talk about his organization's recent stunts in the Netherlands and Sweden and the news in vaping regulation. So let's get started. So first off, let's talk about farm-to-fork. Agriculture is big on the agenda. The war in Ukraine, organized, uh, unfortunately, still going on uh, by Russia, um, is, uh, is having an impact on, on food uh, uh, prices, uh, food availability, and I think it will just get worse uh, going from here. Um, we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit already. Uh, this has implications for Europe and the policy decisions that will be made. Emmanuel Macron has recently said that Farm to Fork should be put on hold because we cannot afford reducing farmland, which is planned to be a reduction of 10% under the Farm to Fork strategy. The European People's Party, the biggest uh, parliamentary group in the European Parliament, has said similar things So, uh, in an official press release, actually. So uh, it, it seems that there are, there might be things being put on hold. However, uh, the commission has reacted. There was a spokesperson of the Agriculture Department of the European Commission uh, reacted. And uh, let me just play that clip.
1: On the comments uh, made by uh, President Macron, as you know, we do not comment on comments made uh, in the context of uh, uh, national elections. I would underline that for us, it is important to, to. implement uh, the farm-to-fork strategy, it is uh, a fundamental pillar of the Green Deal, the aim of which is uh, to uh, ensure that uh, the food system is sustainable and healthy. So, uh, these are are, of course, very important elements, and we will continue uh, to work on these crucial files. Thank you. Uh, All Commissioners are are strongly committed to implementing the Green Deal and uh, to implement the Farm to Fork strategy and our biodiversity strategy. We are uh, all convinced uh, of the importance of this strategy, and uh, Europe needs our Green Deal uh, in all sectors. I think uh, that there is uh, clarity at all levels uh, in uh, the commission.
0: I'm not quite so sure that all the commissioners are necessarily uh, committed to this, uh, especially because um, uh, Commissioner Wojciechowski, the Polish Commissioner for Agriculture, uh, he was already quite sceptical. And there seems to be even differences between what the Polish Commissioner says and the Lithuanian Commissioner for the Environment in the European Commission Um, As to how we will go forward on this, it seems for sure that at least some changes will have to be made, but pesticide reduction targets are not on the menu, as the European Commission has confirmed. The 50% reduction target by the European Commission will have to be implemented by EU member states. Now, EU member states can decide for themselves how exactly they want to reach this. And interestingly, there's a divergence between the overall goal um, of the the European uh, uh, Commission and what the member states are supposed to do um, notably because some member states do more agriculture than others and so you might you might have differences on the overall spectrum of the use of pesticides um, so uh, the previous draft on what EU member states are supposed to reduce their pesticides by is 25 percent now that was increased to 40 percent and also, the European Commission will make it more difficult for EU member states to get exemptions from uh, these reduction targets of pesticides. Now, we've talked about this quite a bit on here. To me, the overall reduction target is fairly political, because it doesn't really indicate anything that the European Food Safety Authority has said as to which chemicals are safe and which are not. Um, and and I think that's quite problematic, because, I mean, either EFSA says this chemical can be safely used on 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 farmland or it cannot but if efsa has deemed it safe and now we're trying to phase it out anyway what exactly does that mean for farmers we need fungicides we need um we need uh, all types of synthetic pesticides because we have problems because we have problems in modern agriculture and nature is not always our friend even though some people like to nostalgically or romantically uh, um, approach this this topic uh, I've written a whole paper, which you can find on the Consumer Choice Center's website on consumerchoicecenter.org, and you just select publications on mycotoxin contamination. Uh, that one was called Essential Food Safety. And that was just an example for me to illustrate that mycotoxin contamination it causes liver cancers, it causes all types of problems, especially in Africa, it's very widespread. Um, and one part of it is the the correct use of fungicides and the other part of it is correct storage so if you go to a country um that experiences high level of heat and then the vegetables are out in the open in the in 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 sun um you develop mold i know that my grandmother in time she would say, like, oh, yeah, you have this jar of marmalade, there's some mold in it, you just cut it off and then you use the rest. Please do not do that because you have already an entire infection of the entire jar of marmalade or the vegetable or whatever by the time it actually manifests itself on top. And that is really, really bad for you. So you really shouldn't do that. I know that at one point we also had a USDA a scientist who who came on the program there's also a youtube video associated with that that you can check out on the consumer choice center uh, youtube channel please subscribe to that as well by the way um where where you can where we really discuss this in detail aflatoxin vomitoxin uh, a lot of different toxins that do develop because of an incorrect use of fungicides or the absence of the use of fungicides so that's just one example then of course herbicides are another one where we lose a lot of the crops um, if we do not use these pesticides um now of course we could look at this from the perspective and say like well i mean we have overall less food production and so on uh it's not a big problem people will just pay a little bit more for food Uh, there has been its voices in the european commission that say that food might even be too cheap anyway um however while it might be possible for people in the netherlands and luxembourg where overall household spending on food is less than 10 percent um it is more than 25 percent in countries such as romania so we need to think about the policies for the european union as a whole it's not just uh, people in the big cities that need to buy food it's people all across the board we already have significant inflation we had supply chain problems with COVID, and i think we really cannot afford um, doing like a considerable overhaul of the food system uh, this quickly Um, when we now also have one of the main trading partners or two of the main trading partners when it comes to agriculture, Russia and Ukraine, um, one being at war, needing the food for itself, the other one being severely sanctioned, rightfully so. Um, And and we really need to consider how do we supply food safety, but more importantly, even food security for consumers so that we don't have the explosion in prices um, or the absence of food in our supermarkets. So it'll be interesting to see Um, how much further this will go i think the outcome of the french election uh well the first round is on sunday and then two weeks later we'll have the, the 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 second round vote will determine quite a bit how farm to fork will uh continue going germany has been fairly quiet on the issue so we'll have to see um how far the agricultural reforms can continue within the european green deal um once we have a new french president and the germans chime in a reminder also to our listeners um, we are also available on podcasting 2.0. You can use us with podcast platforms such as Breeze or Fountain. Fountain is the one that I'm using. Uh, thereby, you support um, podcasts that work on the blockchain. And you can also make donations with cryptocurrency if that is what you want to do. If you're more of a traditionalist and you want to make the donation anyway, you can, uh, you can support us on the Consumer Choice Center's website, consumerchoicecenter.com slash donate. Everything is appreciated. Um, and we want to keep running this podcast as much as we can. Next up, I have Michael Lundell from the World Vapors Alliance. His organization did some recent stunts in the Netherlands and in Sweden to try and stop flavor bans on uh, harm reduction products such as e-cigarettes, and uh, and it's been very interesting to see some of the some of the movements that have been. Uh, Going on there in that field, so we have uh, Michael back on to tell us more of the news. Great to have you back. You did some recent stunts uh, in Europe because there are some focus points that you need to uh, home into when it comes to e-cigarette regulation and especially the flavors that we use for e-cigarettes. So tell us a bit more about um, what have been sort of the the focus countries and what have you organized in those places. Sure, thank you for having me again. Um, the last few weeks we went to Stockholm and The Hague, so. Um,
2: Unfortunately, two countries with Sweden and Netherlands where you would think they are very progressive when it comes to lifestyle regulations, but the Netherlands already last year announced um, the plan to ban all flavors and Sweden a couple of weeks ago also announced the intention of a full flavor ban for vaping products and all other nicotine products as well. So we said we have to do something because uh, flavors are a gateway out of smoking and politicians always misunderstand that and think the opposite is true. But two thirds of vapors are using some kind of flavors and exactly the reason for that is that they don't want to be reminded of the taste of a cigarette anymore. So if we ban those kind of flavors, a lot of those people will be pushed back. Actually the University of Waterloo just came out with a, a survey uh, that f- five out of 10 vapors would go back to smoking or the black market if we ban all, va- all fla- flavors. So it's quite clear that this is very detrimental to all public health goals. Those same politicians set out. Um, and they want to reduce smoking, but with those kind of bans, they do exactly the opposite and push vapors back to smoking. So we said we need to do something against those ideas or those plans um, and organized in Stockholm a protest and in The Hague and protest art installation to point out that flavors matter for all adults as well. And we set up a puzzle with the slogan, flavors help smokers quit, and the missing puzzle piece was flavors. And then um, we put it on live in front of the parliament there to, to
0: visualize the importance of flavors to politicians. Briefly, there has been um, slightly positive news in the Netherlands. There seems to be a bit of a delay for this new flavor legislation. Uh, Can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, they just announced that two days after our protest that um, they won't go through it. It was planned this summer already that the uh, flavor ban is implemented. Now they delayed it uh, for a year. Um, We are not sure yet what the exact reasons for it is. Um, but they came up with this strange proposal that um, they want to ban flavors and make a list with exemptions. And the, on the list are flavors which are not attractive to kids. So nobody really knows how to define it. Um, <laughs> and I think, yeah, yeah, and I think now they need to find out how to define it uh, after they already implemented this legislation. So it's kind of strange. But obviously, in short term, it's, it's a win, but um, definitely not off the table. And I think this opens a window where consumers can still raise their voice and point out how important it is to not go through with this ban.
0: Now, on an EU level, a flavor ban was not supported in the European Parliament, but now individual member states are still trying to do their own thing. Like, Why is that? Why does something that did not necessarily reach a majority in the European Parliament still have popularity within governments in in, in certain member states.
2: I, probably that depends a little bit country by country but I think in general this flavor ban or the flavors are under attack also on European level. it was it's not fully off the table. Um, the European Parliament didn't put the complete flavor ban in their wording but they also opened the door for bans of certain flavors, and now they're also trying to find out what kind of flavors you have to, uh, or they want to ban. Um, so it's always there and it will still uh, be an issue on the European um, and the European level as well when the tobacco products directive comes up in the next year. Um, and I think their flavors will be the central... Uh, battleground, if you want to call it like this as well, um, but that trickles down then to countries as well, and I think those countries who already are on the way, they will push hard for TPD to be to include a flavor ban as well, um, but obviously as World Vapors Alliance, we will also
0: fight back on the European level against those. Uh, Michael I wanted to take one more minute and ask you a personal question because I think it's also important to sort of remind some of the listeners of the of the positive effects there. when you you were a smoker for some years and when you quit smoking and switched to vaping can you give the audience maybe some impressions as to what changed for you from like a, a health perspective like how you um, how you felt as a result of switching from from cigarettes to e-cigarettes
2: Yeah I was about 28 when I uh, switched to vaping after 12 years of smoking Um, But on the other hand, on 28, I didn't really have this hard health effects yet from smoking. So for me, it was way more the change of lifestyle and taste. Um, And it's exactly because of flavors. I only realized after how disgusting cigarettes actually are. Um, And I couldn't smoke a cigarette anymore, thanks to flavors. And I also don't use tobacco flavor. For me, it's always um, apple or, or mint or something like that. Um, and I think the biggest advantage for me always was also the smell issue, which is gone.
0: All right, plug some of the, some of the websites or social media. Where can people find World Vapors Alliance? Yeah, we're about to getting a brand new website at worldvapersalliance.com And there
2: um, all listeners can find all information about how to contact us, but also about
0: all of our campaigns in all countries we are running at the moment. Thanks, Michael. Good luck. Thank you. But now let's move to our last guest of the day. His name is Ritis Valunas. He's the Chief Officer for Corporate Affairs at KN in Lithuania, um, where he is an expert on everything LNG. So we had quite a few technical questions. Uh, The political questions have been debated on this podcast before, but I really wanted to have somebody on who knows exactly... um, how LNG works, what are the the implications of implementing LNG. A lot of talk about it in the European Union right now. Many member states interested by liquefied natural gas. So um, yeah, we had them on and uh, asked them all the tough questions. All right, so Ritis, first of all, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's really interesting to our audience to talk about this issue. Um, but of course, we hear a lot about energy, uh, we hear a lot about gas, uh, but before we go into that, I wanted to learn a bit more about you. Uh, give our audience a bit of a background on what you do, how you got to work in uh, liquefied natural gas, and uh, what you do now? Uh, so thanks for inviting. And starting about
3: myself, uh, I joined the current company, which is called Kian, which is a state-owned company in Lithuania, almost nine years ago, which is a long, long time ago exactly for the reason to join the liquefied Natural Gas Thermal Independence and be a chief uh, lawyer uh, back then in the project team. It took a couple of years to complete the project with all the hurdles and the challenges, and I decided to stay uh, at the company given uh, career possibilities and the future challenges that we have as an energy and oil and gas company in the region and also being a strategic company in Lithuania. So as of today, I'm one of the C-level executives uh, being a chief officer for corporate affairs, uh, supervising and overseeing the legal area, administrative staff, corporate governance uh, processes, innovation projects, and really looking forward to a new uh, areas for development in the sustainable business
0: fields. So, so it is indeed a very interesting field, and in in Europe there are differences on how well equipped countries are when it comes to LNG uh, infrastructure. Spain is a it seems to be sort of a front runner in 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 this industry. Now, explain to our audience like where is Lithuania at? Um, is this a recent phenomenon? Uh, trying to develop uh, more LNG, and and maybe also can you go into the, the reasons why uh, this this is such an important industry for your country?
3: Uh, so Lithuania as of today is uh, the first EU country I believe which uh, cut off the supply from the from Russia uh, when it comes to gas completely so being the first EU country and actually thanks to the infrastructure that we built uh, more than 8 years ago and uh, thanks to the liquefied natural gas terminal at the sea uh, site of Lithuania in Klaipeda and this was a strategic decision uh, made uh, as early as back in 2009 uh, by, the, uh, by the then government envisaging such option in the energy strategy and then making uh, coherent decisions and steps afterwards. And the main reason being actually a geopolitical and also economical because uh, back then Lithuania was isolated energy island Uh, 100% dependent on uh, single supplier uh, gas and single country, which was Russia back then, implying that there was a big concern for uh, energy security. Also, in light of the events that took place in Ukraine back then, I suppose, when there were severe uh, gas supply disruptions. And also economic aspect being uh, the highest price for the gas in Europe back then, which we had to pay on average, I suppose, around thirteen, and sometimes 40% higher than the average uh, index price uh, for the rest of Europe, which had the diversified supply uh, grids and also access to, to some extent, LNG market and uh, sources for the
0: gas. So how much does... LNG now represent in the overall gas market in Lithuania and also maybe what like what prospects do you see for the future like where, where, where is it going to go? So uh, at the moment I perhaps
3: I can uh, point out to the fact that since the inception of operations at the end of 2014 the price uh, of gas has dropped by some 30% immediately just the day after the
0: internal
3: wow. started operations. Uh, meaning that we did really brought our country uh, to uh, the participation in global gas market and uh, gaining the ability and possibility and access and as a benefit to pay fair price for the gas, meaning that this is a global price uh, representing the situation which is economic and not a political. So that's the thing. And that said, uh, since the inception, uh, the flows of the gas uh, and uh, the amounts of the gas uh, being imported through the terminal or through the pipeline, uh, which uh, uh, remained in the operation, were completely subject to the market conditions, meaning that in some years, uh, it was a bigger share coming from the LNG as a primary source, and uh, in some other years, a bigger share uh, coming a bigger chunk uh, from the pipeline uh, from Russia, so that said, uh, last year, uh, sixty some sixty percent of uh, entire uh, consumed gas in Lithuania and also besides in the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania uh, represented uh, uh, basically the LNG by the source of LNG being imported through the thermal. So. It's meaning that more than, it's nearly two thirds of entire consumed gas came through the terminal. And this is quite a vast number. And as of today, uh, the plan and ambition is to have 100% uh, supply and uh, meeting the demand, uh, satisfying the demand of all Baltic states, of course, subject to to some uh, operational nuances and additional measures that are necessary to make this ambitious goal realistic but it is really very very realistic thanks to the capacity and flexibility of lng infrastructure that we have
0: so it seems that latvia and estonia are um, are they dependent also on lithuania's infrastructure or do they do they have their own infrastructure in, in, in progress how, how important is lithuania for the region
1: uh,
3: latvia and estonia as of the moment uh, don't, do not have uh, their own LNG import uh, facilities. And that's also being part of their uh, political decisions made, uh, I suppose. Uh, in the past, uh, having said that, they have some considerations. And as far as I see those uh, talks and uh, ideas are back on the political agenda, as I see. Uh, having said that, uh, the terminal in Lithuania operates on free third-party access implying that any player or entity can book a capacity by means of participation in the uh, annual, uh, biannual tender and uh, then book the capacities for the remaining uh, spots if such spots are available after the, this uh, uh, mandatory and uh, uh, biannual procedure is taking place. That said, uh, historically, uh, Latvian and Estonian companies were able to get, I, I suppose, satisfy all necessary demands uh, thanks to the extra available capacities of the terminal, so up to date. Uh, it's important to know that uh, as from the 1st of May, uh, the new interconnection is opening a gas pipeline between Lithuania and Poland, implying that Ownish consumers will also get an access uh, to the LNG terminal capacities and uh, use it as an additional source for the supply of gas to the market. Uh, Implying also that this, uh, to that extent, uh, raises some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know if I can call it competition, uh, but demand, uh, overall demand for the capacities in LNG terminal. And this is also reflected in the Uh, results of booked capacities for the upcoming uh, six months uh, showing that all the capacities have been booked and the terminal is going to have for in the next six months uh, perhaps the highest utilization rate in europe which will which will reach some 90 percent of utilization which is an incredible incredible number uh, for this type of infrastructure And uh, that would imply, uh, if to take the full year, that may imply up to 3.5 or 3.6 BCMs totally supplied through the thermal. And that is quite an impressive number.
0: Well, on that note, did you ever think um, that your work was going to become this important? Was was it ever on your mind that there could be such a relevance to your work? Because right now... Um, it's in everyone's mind, LNG is, 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 is going to be part of the strategy was all across Europe. Was that ever on your mind that the work I'm doing right now could will ever be this um, this crucial?
3: Well, back then when I was younger, uh, in fact, I uh, encountered information about the project uh, at the Lithuanian Embassy in Washington, D.C., where I was uh, uh, taking part as a stagiaire or intern as an energy policy intern. And this project really uh, fascinated with the ambition, with the audacity and with this whole purpose of really uh, transforming countries and energy situation and landscape uh, and uh, making the country independent from single supplier gas. So this was rather a really exciting project to work on. That was the reason why I decided to come back from uh, abroad and uh, join a company in Lithuania. Uh, that said, uh, now looking back retrospectively, it's easy to judge uh, and uh, well, now say that we are so fortunate and we are so lucky uh, from this perspective uh, because we really ensure this possibility and the option of the security supply in Lithuania. Uh, but There has been always a discussion, and sometimes uh, hotter, sometimes uh, colder. In a way, the price of the security of the supply in Lithuania, in a country, Uh, these questions and statements like the terminal has been too big, too expensive, uh, uh, maybe inflexible, uh, maybe unnecessary at all, because it's still a part of the fossil fuel program, this uh, old fossil fuel world, and so on, so on. So there has been always. uh, uh, quite a substantial opposition in the country and various interest groups uh, uh, stating or claiming that uh, this project is, has never been uh, uh, I guess sufficient or appropriate for Lithuania back then now uh, when we look back so this was this uh, component of uh, uh, fatigue or uh, the dark side or dem- demotivational in the process of the project's execution and later uh, operational exploitation that said, uh, uh, when we look back, and I guess when we look at our governments and uh, state's decisions, uh, everybody understands, or those key decision makers understand that it has never been an uh, entirely economic project. It was part of the security, energy security and strategy, and the security has its own costs. So now we can see that under these very unfortunate circumstances, and uh, tragical circumstances in the continent of Europe, now the security is also turning into a full economic benefit, a full economic benefit for the consumers, for the country, not to mention that security component. And that said, it's also bit, well, symbolized this economic uh, uh, return of investment in the fact that since uh, all the capacities, nearly all the capacities are booked, the cost of infrastructure for LNG thermal for Lithuanian gas users will literally go close to zero. So, I guess this is really a success story in a way, but uh, it's always about the question of perspective. So, had we not had this situation, which is very unfortunate, uh, maybe we would, could look at things differently. And I think this is the precarious situation in which. Uh, every single member state of the EU finds itself today. So the decisions, uh, whether they were uh, long-term visionary or if they were based on rather short-term benefit uh, and uh, trading uh, your uh, security of the supply in uh, potentially trading and having this risk uh, in your uh, existence in uh, some distant future. Which now materialized to a full extent uh, and extent which was unimaginable, I suppose, even uh, two months ago.
0: I can I can definitely see, and I think, I think the listeners can hear that you have been interning at a uh, at an embassy at one point because you are very diplomatic in the way you express yourself. I would have put it in different terms for some of the European countries, but you are absolutely right. Uh, and that brings me to one last question because we're almost at the end of our time here, and that's what you mentioned. A lot of European countries are now interested in diversifying their energy uh, supplies. Um, if a policy advisor, a politician is listening to this podcast and says, "Well, this is actually very interesting what Lithuania has done. Uh, maybe we should do this as well." Can you? I don't know. It's, it's probably a hard question to answer in, in short, in, 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 in short form. But some of the challenges that you've encountered and sort of the the feasibility of building this type of infrastructure is that something that every country can do uh, what are the components that are necessary for a country to really go the route that, that Lithuania has, has gone down to? so I can only reflect from my
3: own personal perspective and not to pretend that this is an official some sort of verified uh, of course uh, uh, <laughs> stance uh, I think what's obvious in case of my country and uh, then uh, based on the examples and stories uh, of some other countries and and we have quite a few that what's important is a strategic decision uh, which is established and not contested uh, because of government shifts uh, as time goes by so this is really strategic decision uh, to be followed by all the governments in the democratic countries and uh, we start from there then of course the capable project team and uh, coordinated work between the institutions because it's always about the question of uh, lots of bureaucracy to be followed and to be complied with it's always about the question of the eu policy and uh, decisions and actions by the institutions because in many instances we also talk about the state aid which was also the case uh, in uh, Lithuanian and lng terminal uh, project and uh, we need passionate people, I suppose, uh, who are willing to dedicate themselves to the fullest extent and make that extra mile to overcome all the hurdles. And at the end of the day, it's all about the public support. So if people of the country believe in the necessity of these type of projects, uh, of this type of infrastructure then I guess all the conditions are preset for success. And that said, I guess one more caveat as a footnote and uh, uh, before saying goodbye, I guess this dichotomy between the green energy, uh, which is now uh, in on the main agenda of the Green Deal and uh, the main direction for the entire EU continent and hopefully for the rest of the world at some point or another, I think it's really important to, uh, Dismiss or sort of uh, avoid the meats and uh, uh, these hazards of the gas as a fossil fuel and evil uh, source of energy, you know, in the near term as an opposition as an evil to the renewable energy and the reason being that uh, realistically we still don't need gas uh, to some extent or another to have a successful transition between the very uh, toxic and carbon intensive fossil fuel as oil and coal to be able to bridge the transitions of our economies into a 100% renewable company, uh, sorry, economies. Because the technology is not there yet, we have to work hard. And as I told you, my latest interest and uh, area for uh, expertise is this exactly renewable energy projects like uh, hydrogen, uh, carbon capture storage, and even maintenance of some renewable energy facilities and maybe cooperating and taking place, taking part in these infrastructure projects here in
0: Lithuania and overseas. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Ritiz Valunas on Twitter at Ritiz Valunas. That's R-Y-T-I-S Valunas. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday.